2,000 sermons in my lifetime, but I never thought I would try to give one. When Titus asked me to give this multi-voice sermon, he sent me the six lectionary scripture passages. In the last few weeks, as I read them over and over, I chose two. I was initially drawn to Psalm 19, to the words, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Do you know that the current price of gold for an ounce is about $1,770? Do you wish you had some? Well, these words about gold brought a memory to me from the 1970s when we lived in Somalia, Africa, a few degrees north of the equator at sea level. Every day was hot. One day, the mission wives took a field trip to the ancient part of Mogadishu. The dirt streets were narrow for pedestrians and donkeys only with little space for a breeze. Eventually, we entered the open door of a gold shop and faced a glass display case holding breathtakingly beautiful gold jewelry. As we lingered over that case with admiring and wishful thoughts, I convinced myself that the jewelry was too expensive for a Mennonite missionary woman. We soon realized that on our right, a man sat by an open window at a very small wooden table. The only light in the room came from that window and the flame of a Bunsen burner on the table. The man bent over a flat piece of broken-edged marble. On that marble, he was creating drop by drop a beautiful gold filigree earring. As we stood there watching, totally captivated, sweating profusely, we realized that behind us in the dark room was a small forge with a roaring fire. We watched as the few workers poured liquid red-hot gold to cool in troughs on the floor, on the dirt floor. In that primitive place, men were spending their lives creating gifts of beauty for the world. Many, many times I have wished I would have purchased a piece of that gold jewelry. Often I have longed to see it again. Would buying and owning that piece of jewelry, that piece of gold, have set me free in some ways that I needed? Of course, I can't know, but I rather think so. As I read Psalm 19, 7 to 10, many times these past weeks, I became aware that most of my life, I've skimmed over these verses because I didn't like the words. Law, decrees, precepts, commandments, ordinances. These words, especially ordinances, were negatively anchored in the first quarter of my life. For the ordinance of baptism, the most emphasized point was that I needed to wear a navy or black dress, black hose and shoes, and have square corners on my head covering. 
For the twice a year ordinance of communion and foot washing, I was to be dressed in the same black array. But most of my church, my experience of church life was connected to the fourth ordinance, that of church discipline, which I now know was too harsh and too negative. I also know that during those years, my resistance was a way of protecting my survival and that I was not being a bad Christian. As I sat with these verses, I asked God to help me find the gold in them. One day I was thinking about the word precepts. A thought came about my two sons-in-law who are family doctors. They both have volunteered many hours as preceptors to new young doctors, guiding and teaching the young ones as they work together. Gradually, I found other ways to soften and detox these words I didn't like. I became able to see these words, law, decrees, ordinances, as the language of God's covenant with us. This covenant is to bring us into joy and not into bondage, to bring us into God's love. The negative reactions no longer overshadowed the words reviving the soul, making wise the simple, rejoicing the heart, enlightening the eyes. They became words of comfort and hope. God is committed to loving us. Why, even this morning, Jesus himself sang to us, he calls me his own. In return, we are invited to love God as best we can, however well or poorly we manage to do so on any given day. The quality of our love is acceptable. It's okay. And that in itself is a precious gift of gold. Moving on to the words from Mark 9, 38 to 50. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand, your foot, your eye cause you to stumble, get rid of them. Harsh sounding words. When I was growing up, I heard folks puzzling over them. My school friend said it meant to paint your car bumpers black so the shiny bumper didn't offend anyone. I've heard many things people have done or not done so they don't offend others and fall into this, these categories. How are we to understand this scripture? Many Christians are so sure what certain verses mean that they're willing to hurt others with those verses. But what about these verses? In all my years, I've not heard of anyone drowned with a millstone or met someone without an eye or a hand because of these words from Mark. As I read these verses and the following ones again and again and again, let me review these following ones for you. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with everyone. 
The switch to talking about salt after these other graphic, scary words seems so abrupt, like a whole different topic. Gradually, I wondered if all the verses in this passage might be connected and that the verses about salt might be the greater emphasis than the previous ones, getting rid of your eye, hand, or foot. Since ancient times, people worked hard to find ways to get salt and to increase the quality of the salt they did find. In the book, Salt, A World History, Mark Kolansky states, in our times, salt is so common, so easy to obtain, and so inexpensive that we have forgotten that from the beginning of civilization until about a hundred years ago, salt was one of the most sought after commodities in history. Salt was traded for and fought over. I think Jesus and his listeners tuned in to the words about salt at a different level than we tend to today. Salt is extremely valuable and has over 14,000 uses today, including that of keeping our bodies healthy. So for your thinking, I propose that maybe these verses about plucking out an eye, cutting off a hand, are there to guide us in watching over ourselves, to help us create an awareness of when we're getting off the track, a warning bell, so to speak, Time to stop a bit, make an assessment, start chopping, plucking, or drowning, or turn our faces intently towards God and open ourselves to whatever. The Romans called a man in love, salax, meaning in a salted state. When we love God, are we in a salted state? It seems as if loving God is a key, key way of keeping our salt salty. Everyone will be salted with fire. These words made me think again of the roaring fire in the forge at the little gold shop. I think we often experience the difficult situations life throws at us, as being tested in the fire. With God's help, they change us. In the darkness, the dirt, the heat of the little gold shop, I saw great beauty emerge drop by drop. So may it be with you. I have an idea for a new part of the ordinance of church discipline. That would be for every one of you to try to give a sermon. <laughs> it would give you a new appreciation for the hard work a pastor does. And if so, may you be blessed with a daughter who looks at your sermon on Thursday afternoon and a look of horror comes over her face and she says, throw it out and start over. And then I would advise you, as you write sermon number two, to save it well on your computer <laughs> and don't lose it totally as I did on Friday evening. 
And so I will end this third sermon with these ideas. A quote from the year 523 by a Roman official who said, Although there may be someone who does not seek gold, there never yet lived a man who does not desire salt, which makes every food more savory. Gold and salt. Be an Olympian and go for the gold of God's word, God's spirit, and God's love. Let the roaring fire of the forge of life and the love for God and God's love for you make you salty salt. The world needs it. I chose to focus on the passage from James, and it's a passage that I have thought about for a long time, and the first time I really seriously studied it was as a junior in college at Messiah College, taking a course in New Testament Greek, and thought, okay, maybe knowing the Greek words and all the Greek um, grammar and everything is going to make perfect sense out of this passage. Um, It just added more questions. So this morning I may be asking more questions and I'm providing answers. I hope you're okay with that. James starts the passage off fairly simply. If you suffer, pray. If you are cheerful, sing songs of praise. It's very reminiscent of Paul's teaching in Romans 12 where he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Although he seems to have a little bit of an individualistic um, bent to it in James of pray by yourself, be singing by yourself. Then we get to the instructions for those who are sick. Now, that's a passage that's of a lot of interest to me on two levels. Professionally, as a hospital chaplain, Um, How do you work with people who are sick? How do you help them? Um, Pretty important question. I've also been interested in this passage from a personal level, as somebody who dealt with chronic pain for several years. What does it mean to ask for prayer, ask for anointing, and what does it mean to be healed? 
Is it a different definition of being healed than what we typically think of being cured? So let's look at these verses. If you're sick, call for the elders of the church. Well, who are the elders? The class, Sunday school class that meets in the um, mailbox room? Are the elders the leaders of the church? Are the elders those who are spiritually mature? Later in the passage, James refers to Elijah and the power of the prayer of Elijah and reminds us that Elijah was a human being just like us. Maybe the elders are anyone who is spiritual, anyone who believes. Have the elders pray over the sick. Many have gotten caught up in the specifics of prayer. The prayer of faith. So if the person does not get well, does that mean that it was not a prayer of faith? It was a prayer of doubt? A prayer of not pure faith? Does faith need to be pure like gold to be valued? In some ways, there's some support for that. Um, In James chapter 1, verse 6 to 8, James writes, Writes, but ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now, of course, these verses in chapter 1 are in the context of asking for wisdom. Does context matter? Does doubting in prayer make a difference if you're asking for wisdom or if you're asking for healing. Had a family in the emergency room one time. Their loved one had come in with a brain bleed, area of the brain that there was blood just pouring into that area. And the doctors, after they examined the patient and they did some uh, different tests, they said, there's no hope here. This person is dying. Uh, There's nothing that we can do that is going to change that. And it's a matter of hours or at the most days. The family began to look at decision making. What do we need to do? How do we need to prepare for this death? Are there other people to contact? What about a funeral? And all those kind of logistic questions as well as beginning to grieve over the loss of this person who had been important in their life. I had the privilege to be in the room with the family during that time, and their pastor came into the room. And their pastor heard the conversation that was taking place and said, Stop! Stop! We need to have faith. All this planning for death, that's a sign of a lack of faith. We need to pray and we need to claim God's promise that God will heal. Is that what James is saying? Is faith wishful thinking? Is faith sometimes denial? 
Or are people like I just doubters? Um, in chapter 4, James continues to write about the idea of prayer and asking and says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your own pleasures. Hmm. Sometimes literal readings cause problems. Annabelle mentioned in her part of the sermon that she had never met somebody who had cut off their hand or foot or plucked out their eye for such reasons. I met somebody who had attempted to pluck out their eye because they thought it offended them. Now, we quickly admitted them to the mental health unit. We also meet lots of people in the hospital who they pray. And, well, I'm going to pray and I'm going to be healed so I don't need to take that medication. I'm going to pray, I'm going to be healed so I don't need that surgery. When is prayer an act of faith? And when is prayer an act of denial? When is prayer wanting to avoid the difficult situation that's in front of us? I warned you I was going to ask a lot of questions. Well, moving along, the sick person should also ask to be anointed with oil. Now, some people get caught up in the specifics of the oil. Many have made, I'm assuming, a lot of money selling little vials of oil that were produced from the olives of the, of the trees on the Mount of Olive. And this oil has been specially blessed by some holy person. I was tempted to bring it out. Um, I'll give you guys a little bit of a secret of the behind the scenes here. Don't tell anybody, though. Back there, there's a closet, a cupboard, and you open the doors, and the holy oil's in there. It's so holy, the label on it is not a word that we normally use in our everyday language. It says, Wesson. In college, I was very impressed by a TV preacher who instructed people to take out their wallet, remove the largest bill from that wallet, and send it into him. And he would send them a vial of holy anointing oil that would solve all their problems. Hmm. Anointing does have a long and rich tradition in Scripture. Think of Saul. Or, sorry, um, Samuel anointing Saul to become king. Various anointings. An anointing was a sign of God's presence with the person, a sign of God's favor, a sign of God's blessing. I think too much emphasis on the material and the holy anointing oil can end up really cheapening the power of what anointing is about. Some get caught up in the results. 
The New Revised Standard uses the word saved in verse 15 and the word healed in verse 16. And the word in Greek in verse 15 that NRSV uh, translates as saved can either be saved or healed. Or maybe both. What kind of healing or saving is promised? Are we healed spiritually? Are we healed emotionally? Are we healed physically? Or is this one of those multiple choice questions where D, all the above, is the right answer? Are we saved from hell? Are we saved from something here and now? I often challenge my students when they pray for people and they pray for God to heal them. What happens if the person is not healed? What does that do to a person's faith when they hear that the chaplain is there, maybe their pastor is there, maybe other people are praying for their healing and that person's not healed? Does that make them doubt God and God's power and goodness? Does that make them doubt the power of prayer? What does it do? Now, often students will reply with a seminary-trained answer that healing happens on multiple levels and someone may be healed in a way that um, is very meaningful, even while not emerging from a coma and dying days later. And while I agree with their answer, I'm not sure that's the way the average person hears the promise of healing. And what does James mean when he promises healing? He doesn't elaborate. I think to be healed means to be made whole. Which sort of reminds me of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, be perfect just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. When I was a child, you know, good old King James, um, that perfection piece, I thought, there's no way I'm ever going to measure up to that. And then I got older and realized that, well, that word really doesn't mean perfect in that sense. It means complete. It means to be everything that we were intended to be. To be healed. For our bodies to function the way they're supposed to. Or for our, our minds to be able to deal with what's going on with our bodies. Well, if we keep going with James, we then get to confession. If we confess our sins one to another and pray one for another, we will be healed. My imagination is that if I was to stop the sermon right now and say, okay, ushers, would you bring the microphones and we're going to have group confession. My imagination is that there would be a period of silence. Ah, nobody's doubting that. Um, and after a period of time, some brave soul would begin to confess. Maybe they would confess something like, well, I sinned this morning because I did not come to a full and complete stop at a stop sign. 
There was a long line of traffic coming, and I realized that if I really completely stopped so that my tires did not move, I would have to wait for that long of traffic, and I might be late for church. Or somebody else might confess that they're not perfect or superhuman. I'm not sure that's the type of confession that James had in mind. I think he was more interested in the sins that really plague us, the things that keep us awake at night, the things that nobody else knows about us, the things that are kept under wrap because of shame, because of fear of rejection, because of fear, because of pride. I'm not going to start naming them for you. Because if I did, some of you might wonder if I've been doing a lot of snooping and spying. Um, it's been said that confession is good for the soul. Twelve-step programs recognize the power of confession. Or maybe they call it honesty. To be honest with oneself and with others. To be honest about what's really going on in one's life and being honest with the sponsor, or being honest with the group. Now, I'm not suggesting that we start doing uh, congregational confession instead of sharing time or as part of sharing time. But I do think that it is important to confess to another human being. In the Protestant Reformation, one of the major pieces was a recognition that we do not need a mediator between us and God. We do not need another human being to do that mediation as a priest. We can go directly to God through Jesus Christ. But I think we've lost something when we no longer involve another human being in the process of confession. James states that that type of that some type of healing will come from the practice of confession. So lots of questions get raised from this passage in James. I invite you to continue to wrestle with these questions. Where do you need healing in your life? How can prayer, anointing, and confession be involved in bringing wholeness into your life?